0: So with that, uh, we now turn to our our final question of what is wisdom? What would be a portrait of Christ honoring wisdom? As we've already said, in some ways wisdom is the least intuitive of the things that we're talking about that people are looking for when they say, I have a low self-esteem. And so here's why wisdom made the list. Because oftentimes when I would be hearing people talk about a struggle with low self-esteem, as I ask more questions, what they would be saying is, I've just made a lot of bad choices. And I don't really trust myself to make better choices. And I look at the choices that I made, I feel this sense of shame. And as I look at the pressures of life, I think I will probably do the same thing again. I just, I don't, when I think about the choices I make, I, I feel bad. And so if, if anything that we've talked about to this point is going to be sustainable, it has to be rooted In wisdom. And so we start with a definition again. Biblical wisdom refers to the principled pursuit of pleasure. Now, pause here and say, Wisdom is not stoic. It is not emotionless. Wisdom is not the accumulation of information. Wisdom is the passionate pursuit of an enjoyable life. But not to fill a void but instead to fulfill a calling. Recognizing that those things that God crafted me and set aside for me to do, that life is going to be most enjoyable when I do them in the way that God designed me to do them. Wisdom requires fearing that is seeking the approval of God more than fearing that is seeking the approval of man. The restraint of wisdom does not diminish The intensity of pleasure. It doesn't give us less pleasure, but prolongs the time frame in which pleasure can be savored and the freedom of conscience with which pleasure can be remembered. Wisdom cannot be reduced to a set of principles or propositions. You know, sometimes in the midst of counseling, I'll be talking through some interpersonal conflict and I'll kind of monologue what a response might sound like. And somebody says, ooh, can you say that again? Can I write it down? Can I just tape what you said and play that for whoever? As if, ah, that, that's what wisdom sounds like. Um, as if it could be captured in a, a set of verbiage. But that doesn't work because wisdom is an expression of God's character in the midst of relationship. Wisdom is, is God's character lived out in the midst of our relationship. Wisdom is a virtue that allows all other blessings to remain good rather than spoiling into a burden. As we think about these things, we begin to realize that wisdom, it doesn't belong to academia. Um, wisdom doesn't even require a high IQ. In many ways, brilliance is capable of more folly than ignorance. I mean, That's called the news. I mean, people who are really, really smart, doing things that are really, really kind of, what were you thinking? That's usually what makes the news. But it's often because solutions are less complex than our challenges that we dismiss wisdom. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. It's often because solutions, wisdom, is less complex than our challenges that we dismiss it. You know, budgeting, it basically boils down to spend less money than you make. Dieting, burn more calories than you take in. Those things are pretty simple. We don't like simple. We would much rather have a pyramid scheme or some fad diet that is much more complex because we feel like it honors our dysfunction somehow. Uh, if, it's just, if it's a little more complicated. But if those things were really true... It would never be sustainable. Wisdom has to be simple to be sustainable. Um, Wisdom requires things like patience, self-control, listening well, and contentment. Because at its root, wisdom is much more about character than it is about information. The absence of those virtues and patience, self-control, contentment, they will devour anything that the wise implementation of massive amounts of information could create. Now, wisdom is not against passion and action, anything like that. It just doesn't view those things as higher virtues than things like patience and self-control and discernment. And so as we walk into what does it look like to live wisely, we're going to look in three areas of life, kind of three parameters of wisdom. Impulse control, fear of rejection, and fear of failure. And so as we look at impulse control, that first parameter is delayed gratification. That a first part of wisdom is to put honor and integrity before pleasure, that I can wait for the good things that God would give me until circumstances allow. So we would say it this way, wisdom allows the risks that we take in confidence to fulfill our purpose, to be acts of faith instead of blind folly. Too often, we'll take the example of finances again. Somebody's trying to figure out what they're going to do. Buying a house, buying a car, sending their kids to private school. And they somehow think that they just, uh, you know, I'll trust God enough. I'll do this without ever looking at numbers. That's not faith. It's wisdom that causes us to look down and make sure that the things that we do in confidence and with purpose are actually acts of faith instead of blind folly. Wisdom allows us to adapt to the preferences uh, and culture of others without surrendering our identity. Again, as those who seek to be salt and light in a dark world, as those who seek to be ambassadors for Christ and get to know those who do not know Christ yet, it is wisdom that allows us to reach out to them and to love them and care for them where they are without surrendering or compromising our sense of identity of who we are in Christ. It's wisdom that allows our sense of security to withstand the criticism and misunderstanding of others without giving way to being calloused or closed-minded. And I think as we talk about these kinds of things, part of what we recognize is in this area of impulse control, it has a lot to do with understanding our emotions and being able to regulate our emotions well. And emotions is one of those things that we rarely ever receive any instruction on. One of those really important life that when we have to learn lots of other stuff, nobody ever really teaches us about emotions. In that sense, it's kind of like parenting. One of those really important parts of life that nobody ever tells us how to do. And so, uh, in appendix D uh, in your seminar packet is an attempt that if you say, I don't understand emotions. I'm not sure that I pair the right emotion to the right circumstance in a way that, that, that it just it, it's healthy and it's what God would have me in responding to a situation. It is meant to help you with that. But for a moment, I'll just walk through some things that emotions do and some things that emotions don't do, or at least shouldn't do. What are some good things for emotions to do in our life? Emotions motivate. Uh, I mean, pleasure. I am motivated to pursue those things. And when things, I mean, it just, it kind of, it drives me. And unpleasant things, they, uh, they demotivate me. This is what every parent uses as we raise our kids to maturity. When they do things well, we try to incentivize that. When we do things not well, we try to show them the consequences of that to allow the emotions of pleasure and displeasure to be a part of motivating. Emotions bond. I mean, when, when we respond to the same situation with similar emotion, we feel close to those people. It's why when we come together in a worship service and we can raise our hands and sing about the same Savior and the same redemption and it moves us, even though we don't know the people around us, they're a part of the same story, the same kind of thing is going on and there's this sense of bonding and connectedness that happens within the body of Christ because emotions bond. Emotions enhance. They're kind of the color commentary on life. And that when we go through something, I could describe it with words, but if I did in a flat, monotone way, it wouldn't quite get across the same experience. It's if I say it and my voice is kind of rising. What if I'm saying there's this deep sense of pain? There's, there's something about emotions that enhance an experience. Emotions warn. You know, there's sometimes when even before... I can put into words why something is not right or not good. There's just this check that I get that something's off. So my emotions can warn me. Emotions memorialize, they make things stick in our memory. Those memories that are most vivid to us are usually connected to times that have strong emotions with them because there's something about, even at the neurobiological level, the expression of emotion and what's going on in our brain that that encapsulates memory. So emotions memorialize. And emotions express. Even if we take a passage like Romans 8, 26 where it says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words to express. There comes to a point where words aren't quite adequate for what we're experiencing in life. And I think another place that we experience that sometimes is in music. I mean, you can take a song, and there's something that can be expressed through the music in the background, the performance of the song, that it's it's more than the words. It stirs and you get it. And a truth resonates with you through a song in a way that it's just harder for it to do in a sermon or in a seminar. And so those are things that emotions do and they do well and are good. Let me give you some things that emotions don't do well. In that if we try to rely on emotions for these things exclusively, it will result in poor impulse control. Emotions do not decide. If we we just make our decisions by going with our gut, there are way too many situational variables and situational pressures uh, that can lead us astray. Uh, Emotions should not adjudicate. Feeling good about something does not make it moral. I can't tell you the number of people who have Talk to me about situations where the choice that they were making was clearly against Scripture. And they make a statement like, you know, I've prayed about it and I really feel like I'm okay with it. That does not make it right. That means you have a seared conscience. That is what Scripture would call that. And so just the emotion of peace by itself, if it's something that's a moral decision, and you feel okay with it, That should be a warning more than a validation. Now, if you're trying to choose between the blue shirt and the yellow shirt, and you go, yeah, I I kind of feel, okay, that's cool, because that's not a moral decision. Emotions uh, should not uh, exclusively confirm. You know, just because I get on the backside of something and it was a pleasant experience. Well, there are plenty of things where the short-term pleasures of this world that our immediate response to that is going to be kind of like, yeah, that was nice but it doesn't necessarily mean it was good. Emotions should not be absolutely trusted. Emotions are going to fluctuate. There's lots of things, uh, physically and situationally in all kinds of ways that influence our emotions. And then finally, emotions should not be used to change life. Uh, This is the root of a lot of addiction. Where people feel overwhelmed by a certain circumstance and they just want to feel better. And so they turn to their substance of choice to manipulate their emotions in order to try to feel better. Or somebody who goes from relationship to relationship because they feel bad and they just want to get caught up in the arms of another person to make it go away and forget about it for a little while. And so when we use emotions for things that they were not intended for, then what it does is it hampers our impulse control. It does not allow us to live by the wisdom principle of delayed gratification that would let us look back on the choices of our life and have a sense of self that was satisfying and good. A second part of wisdom is wise vulnerability. This is what allows us to overcome the fear of rejection. Now, i put the description of wise in front of vulnerability because sometimes we hear the word vulnerable and we, we hear somebody asking us to be vulnerable and it kind of comes across like I just need to emotionally vomit my entire life to every person every time I see them and I'm just going to tell everybody everything about me all the time and I'm going to be this social outcast of a freak if I do that. It's not, it's not what we mean when we say wise vulnerability. Here's our definition of vulnerable. A state of being being made possible by the security and identity found in the gospel so that every event and emotion of one's life is on the table when it is useful to glorify God by encouraging somebody else, by allowing somebody else to care for me, or to share the gospel with an unbeliever. So again, what vulnerability means is that any part of my life is on the table. doesn't mean I'm always going to share it. But any part of my life is there whenever it is useful that I could care for somebody else, that I would allow somebody else to care for me, or sharing this experience would allow me to bridge the gospel to an unbeliever. So here's the freedom that that provides. In the absence of my life being on the table that way, there are parts of my life that are just off limits. And as, I, as I'm in relationship, I begin to play kind of the six degree of separation game. If I can't talk about this, then I can't talk about any of these things that are related to this because that would cause the conversation to go there. And that kind of means the and we kind of go out to where it's like anything near that. So let's say I do have some good relationships, friendships, or even a marriage. And there's parts of me that are off limits, that are unknown. Well, the problem is, unless I'm fully known, I can't be fully loved. And so even if you say, you like me, you value our friendship, That you love me, that you admire me. As long as these things are off limits, I think I don't know if you would say that if you really knew me. And so I can't receive the encouragement that would come from the words that you would offer. On the other hand, if these things are on the table, but our relationship just hasn't got there yet. I don't feel fake. I don't feel like a fraud because we just haven't got to that point in the relationship. And so it's wise vulnerability that allows me to live with those things on the table whenever they're useful to God. To encourage a fellow believer, to let somebody encourage me, or to serve as a bridge to the gospel to an unbeliever. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's, in this, it's kind of a, a fiction piece of Pilgrim's Regress. And so two people uh, are on a journey and they're walking along and they, they come to a valley. Uh, and the one of them um, says, What is this valley called? And the guide answers, We now call it simply Wisdom's Valley. But the oldest maps mark it as the Valley of Humiliation. And so by oldest maps, kind of the metaphor he's creating, is that when we first experienced it, this was humiliating. This was shaming. This was bad. This was something to be hidden. But the implication is, is that as I was wisely vulnerable about that, as I allowed in this area of my life for other people to encourage me, and I let them care for me, and I began to see that, that out of this experience, I could share the comfort that I received with others. That in my weakness, His strength was made perfect. And that I could offer hope because even if your situation was not the same as mine, that, that these things that would cause shame, that we don't have to have shame over those things because God forgives our sin, and He comforts our suffering, and He gives us a new name and identity in Christ and that, that allows us to live outside of shame. That now... That very thing that was meant for my destruction, that was a mark of humiliation, those are the times that I look back and I say, I grew the most. And my sense of confidence in the things of God and the things that would allow me to give good counsel and encouragement and walk along somebody else, walk alongside somebody else in wisdom and caring. That is where I grew the most. And so that's why we would say wise vulnerability is what allows us to overcome the fear of rejection. Our third parameter, uh, reasonable risk, which is what allows us to overcome uh, the fear of failure. And if you'll allow me, I want to give you one more English lesson uh, as we try to think through this one. The fear of failure is rooted in the human tendency to root our identity in an activity, all of us, we tend to turn verbs into nouns. If we run, which is a verb, we call ourselves a runner. Even Forrest Gump didn't run all the time, but I mean, if we run, we call ourselves a runner. If we study, we call ourselves a nerd. If we fail, we call ourselves a failure. And what we tend to do as people, for better or worse, pride or shame, we turn verbs into nouns. And part of what it means to submit to the Lordship of Christ is not just to follow all of His moral commands. You know, that we check off the Ten Commandments and like the rich young ruler, we say, all of these things I have kept since I was young. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ is not just about following a moral code. It's about allowing Christ to have the final and most authoritative word over our life. So that if He says, you are loved, you are set apart, you are my child, with you I am well pleased. Part of submitting to the Lordship of Christ, is to allow those words to have a greater resonance and significance than what any other voice in our world would say. And that's what allows us to face failure. Because if we think about it, every significant thing that has ever happened in the course of human history has been a byproduct of failure. I mean, we all know the story that uh, Mr. Hershey went bankrupt some 37 times before he you know, got into the chocolate industry. Uh, and Edison had so many you know, inventions that tanked before he came up with the light bulb. And just anything that any human being has ever done that was of any significance. Any pastor who has preached a good sermon has preached a lot of duds while they were figuring it out. There is nothing that has ever been done in the course of human history that did not have its origin in failure. And it is when we allow Christ's word to be the final word over us that we are willing to risk failure with our eyes open and our head up, in such a way that we can learn from it and redeem it and see what God would do in the midst of it that gives us the confidence even to fail for the glory of God. So one final quote from Paul Tripp. He says, To live for yourself is to rob yourself of your own humanity. To place me at the center of my world is to be subhuman. It is only in living for Christ that we actually begin to become what we were meant to be. And so if you ask me, Brad, how do we take this seminar and we use the things that we've talked through to help us to do what Paul Tripp says, to to live a fully human life in the redeemed sense, here would be my advice. It would be to go through this material with someone that you know and trust and like. Because I think more than the content More of going, ah, here's three points of confidence and here's three points of security and here's five things that distract us from purpose. Let me memorize that and tackle it and I'll get it. More than that is going to be beneficial. Going through with somebody who you know and trust and like and letting them get to know you. And letting letting yourself experience that being known allows me to experience more of what God is doing Then when I hide all of that stuff, the good and the bad. And as you do that, whether it be, you know, maybe it's you and a friend, or you and a mentor, or you say, I've got somebody that I'd like to mentor me, but I don't really know what that would look like. You use this to start that kind of relationship. Or maybe you're in a position where you're mentoring others, and this is something that you could use. Or it's your small group, and sometime when we're not in alignment as a church going through the sermon series, you just say, we're going to take six weeks and study this as a small group. But as you do that with people that you know and trust and like, that you seek to grow in proportion. Because I think you can get this pretty quick. If you're high on one and low on others, it's not going to be good. So if we put these on a scale of 1 to 10, and say you're like a 10 on confidence and a 2 on wisdom, that's not good. Uh, That may make the news. Um, We don't want to be... It would be better for us to be a 6 on each. And enjoy that that's where we're at. And grow to a seven. And get used to the fact that God enjoys seeing His children grow up and mature. And He's not frustrated going, why are they still a six? He's going, I love seeing them go from a six to a seven. And that's why we offer you kind of a checklist on the back of each of these areas so that you can go through and just kind of see which of these and where am I at and where are my strengths and where are my weaknesses so that you can grow as a child of God who has a father who enjoys every bit of your maturational process. And so with that in mind, uh, let's pray to Him and just get comfortable talking this way to Him about the things we've discussed Lord, we come to you. We are grateful to be your children. We are so glad to have a good father who delights in the growth of his children. Lord, we're not good in all of these areas. There's areas where we're weak. And Lord, before we were willing to admit that, then our own inhibitions kept us pinned in. And we are grateful that we have the freedom to come to you and others that you are in the process of redeeming and say, this is where we are and this is where we're growing. And I pray that you would use this time that we've used together to cultivate this in the lives of your people. That we would enjoy realizing who we are in Christ, fulfilling the purpose for which you're making us. To do that in confidence and security and living it out wisely. Lord, you are good and we are grateful to be your children. In your name we pray. Amen.